Well, this morning I'm continuing in the sermon series I've been doing on justice, looking at what the Bible has to say about this important topic, how to evaluate the cultural messages around us. And um, I want to begin with the three preliminary statements I've been giving every week. First of all, uh, mentioning that this is not primarily a uh, political sermon series or a social science lecture. I'm going to stay in my lane as a pastor trying to talk about what the Bible has to say and how we respond to that. Of course, it'll touch on politics, social sciences, but it's not what we're primarily about here. Um, Secondly, I know I'll be talking about sensitive subjects. I don't expect everyone to agree with every word that I say. I do expect you, though, to set the example of speaking the truth in love. Amen? That as the church, we should set the example of when we disagree with people, we speak the truth in love. Uh, We don't shout. We don't yell. We don't, you know, slander and go crazy the way people often do online or in the world. And then thirdly, um, again, my primary goal here is not that we would collectively wag our finger at the culture for not being like God intended, but that we would instead hold up a mirror to ourselves and say, how are we doing as Christians, as a church, when it comes to this important issue? So this morning, you know, in our quest for for justice and for a just world, we're undoubtedly going to run up against people who that we feel have committed injustices, people that we feel like are not treating people equitably, people who are biased or prejudiced, who we have an issue with. And the question for this morning is, how do we best deal with people who that we feel are acting unjustly? How do we best deal with people who we feel like are not treating people fairly, who have bias, prejudice, things like that, who are contributing to an unjust society or harming others? Because increasingly in our culture, I don't know if you're seeing what I see, but increasingly we're seeing a specific kind of response to those who are guilty of injustice. Cancel them, right? Anyone ever heard the phrase cancel culture? It's a, it's a popular phrase that's growing in, in, uh, in how it gets used these days. This approach to uh, people that includes just, if we don't agree with what they're doing, we're going to cancel them. Dictionary.com, your go-to source, defines cancel culture this way. They said cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for or canceling public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. Anyone familiar with this? You see it kind of increasingly all around as people who say things or behave in ways or maybe said something 10 or 20 years ago that is out of step with kind of popular culture and popular sentiment on hot-button issues get publicly shamed, get called out, get canceled. Uh, people try to get them fired, get them deplatformed, get them just pushed to the side, silence them in any way they can. There's a phrase that I used a couple weeks ago, offense archaeologists. I really like that phrase. People are looking to dig up whatever they can find, any offense they can, to give another reason to just cancel someone, to move them out of the culture. could be a racist tweet. could be a costume that displayed cultural appropriation. Could be someone just espousing views that don't align with the current views on sexuality. Could just be a character or institution that's out of step with the current moral beliefs. And when that happens, the online mob forms, calls the person out, stirs up others to do everything they can to kind of remove them from public view. I'm going to give you a long list, just examples. There's uh, you know, entertainers and comedians. The latest is Dave Chappelle. There's a mob coming after him, trying to cancel him. Writers like J.K. Rowling from the Harry Potter series, again, for views on, on women and gender. There's mobs that are trying to get her canceled. 
professors go through it all the time. This is one professor, Peter Bogosian, who's an atheist, who just left his job because of the way that he saw the culture, the way he was getting called out for things. Uh, you see it all the time with movies, Dumbo, even you know, Disney movies like Dumbo, Gone with the Wind. As people look back and say, the way that you know, they've portrayed things is racist, we need to cancel that movie. Uh, characters like Pepe Le Pew, never going to see them anymore for promoting rape culture. Uh, books like Dr. Seuss books, like If I Ran the Zoo, canceled. Holidays like Columbus Day, canceled. Brands like Aunt Jemima, canceled. And even historical figures like Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, schools that were named after them are now having their names changed because of things about them that are not, uh, not in step with current views, current morals. All examples of this increasing kind of cancel culture where if we don't like the way someone is thinking, someone is acting, if it goes against what we consider justice, we need to call them out, publicly shame them, and remove them from public consciousness. Now, one of the results that I've seen, I don't know if you've seen, is one of the results of this whole cancel culture is an increasing fear among people when it comes to speaking honestly. You know, I hear comedians, they won't do shows at colleges anymore because they know it's not going to go well. University professors who are censoring themselves out of fear that students will come after their jobs. Employees who shut their mouths and go along with whatever trainings are being brought to them because they know if they speak up, they're probably going to lose their jobs. That's kind of the way things have been. If you don't agree with the current cultural climate, then you, f- you run the risk of being called out, shamed, canceled. I fully expect that one day the mob will come for the churches, will come for pastors. I fully expect that one day there's a good chance I, we will find out that I've been canceled by the online mobs, you know. Because if we speak up and say things that are against cultural climate, cultural beliefs, that often is what happens. Now, to be fair, this is not just a kind of far-left thing, right? This is something that's happening all over the place, even in the churches. Churches are not immune from this whole cancel culture thing. Some of you uh, are old enough to remember Amy Grant, pop culture icon of the church when she went through a divorce and how she was, you know, canceled by so many in the church for getting divorced. Some of you uh, may remember John Piper with his tweet, Farewell Rob Bell, when a popular pastor uh, wrote a book where he's questioning the doctrine of hell. Again, let's just cancel him. Get him out of here. Let's not interact with what he has to say. Um, even right now, as in, this, in this world of justice and social justice, there's heresy hunters out there who are trying to call out any pastor out there who dares to say anything that sounds like social justice, you know? The shunning, right? Maybe some of you have come from churches that practice things like shunning and excommunication where it's just, you're no, you're no longer allowed in our church. We need to treat you like persona non grata. And so pastors like David Platt or Matt Chandler who dare to say anything that might sound like social justice, now they're getting kind of cast aside. No, they're too woke. They're too social justice. We need to not listen to them anymore. So it's not just something that's out there. It's also something in our church that we've kind of lost the biblical view of how do you deal with people who you feel like they're acting in ways that are inappropriate, unjust? Is it just you publicly shame them, call them out, and cancel them? Or is there a better way? Is there a better way to deal with people who you disagree with, who people that you feel are acting in ways that are not appropriate, that might be unjust? And yes, I believe that there is a better way. And again, my hope is that as a church, we would hold up a mirror to ourselves and that we would learn from God, from his word, the better way 
to confront injustice, to confront sin. That we don't do things the way the world does. We show that there's a better way. And there's three things in particular I want to share. And the first is this. Take the plank out of your own eye. Anyone ever heard this expression before? If you have not, it comes from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. He said this, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. Genius, isn't it? Jesus gives this great word picture of how to deal with people when you feel like they are acting unjustly, inappropriately, when they have obvious sin that they're not dealing with, that needs to be confronted. He says, before you go and do that, why don't you take a moment and look in the mirror and remove the plank in your own eye so that you can see clearly. It's this great word picture where you can think of like, if I'm trying to take something out of your eye and I've got this log blocking my eye, first of all, I can't see very clearly what's going on there. And secondly, how am I really going to take that speck out of your eye without damaging you in the process, right? If I've got a log, a plank, blocking my own eyesight. So Jesus uses this imagery to say, why don't you all, before you go and confront another person, before you go and call someone out, before you go and cancel someone, why doesn't everyone just take a moment and look in the mirror and remove the plank from your own eye, and then you're going to see clearly and have the right frame of mind and the right attitude to go and confront another person. Let's think of Psalm 139. read this in the beginning of the service. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now that is a prayer that goes along very well with Jesus' words to look at the plank in your own eye. God, This is how I feel about this person right now. I really want to go and confront them. I really want to go and call them out for what they're doing. But before you do that, Jesus says, why don't you take a moment to look in the mirror? Why don't you check your own attitude? Why don't you check your own behaviors? Why don't you ask God to search your heart before you go and post something, before you go and call someone out, before you go and confront someone? Check your own attitude first. How much different would this world be? How much different would the church be if we took this to heart? Right? Every time we felt like we needed to confront someone or call someone out, we first started by asking God to examine our heart, to take the plank out of our own eyes. You know, maybe we might see, as we prayed this, that there might be in us sinful desires that are affecting our attitude and our outlook. Maybe we'd find that we have attitudes that are not of God. Maybe we'd find a desire for vengeance in there that we need to submit to God. Maybe we'd find a desire for manipulation and control of others, that we need to surrender to God and allow him to be in control. Maybe there's idols that we're carrying, that we're looking to for our own comfort and joy that we need to lay down so that God might be honored in what we say and what we do. 
Maybe, just maybe, if we looked in the mirror first, we might find that there's something about our attitude, something about our motivation that needs to be repented of so that we can then take the speck out of our brother's eye, our sister's eye, in a way that doesn't damage things further. Maybe we might find ourselves like the crowd in John chapter 8. You remember this story where the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have the basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Maybe, just maybe, in our desire to call out injustice, to expose people for what they're doing, Maybe if we stopped and asked God to examine our hearts and we looked in the mirror first, we might drop that stone and be like, you know what? Maybe I have no right here. Maybe I need to drop my stone. Maybe I need to worry about myself first and my sin before I go out stoning others. You might even find, if you listen to the, you know, cancel culture people, you might even find something from them worth listening to, that maybe there is this desire for justice or a, a feeling of powerlessness on their part and feel like this is the only way to get what they consider justice. Maybe if we listened first instead of throwing stones, we might learn something. Second thing is this. Not only pl- take the plank out of your own eye, but also speak the truth in love with the goal of restoration. There's a better way, I am saying, to deal with injustice and to deal with those we feel like are acting wrong than following the way of the world of just shaming and calling out and canceling. There's a better way that we can show as a church. First, we take the plank out of our eye, and secondly, we speak the truth in love with the goal of restoration. Think of Matthew chapter 18, 15 to 19. This is how Jesus told us to deal with sin and people who have hurt us. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by your Father in heaven. This is the passage where people have, in churches, mistakenly get the idea of excommunication and shunning, right? It's like, treat them, you know, like a tax collector or a pagan. You know, you don't treat a, someone who's not a believer like, let's shun them. You treat them like, we need to love them and share the gospel with them because we don't believe they're believers. And Jesus is saying, if someone refuses to repent... And you treat them like someone who doesn't know Jesus, who you need to love and show the gospel to, not someone you shun and excommunicate. But he says here, if someone has sinned against you, go between the two of you, you know, you and them, and show them and tell them what they've done wrong. And if they won't listen to you, take someone else along, a counselor, a friend, someone that they respect, and talk to them. And if they won't listen to them, he says, take it to the church, which I take to me, not tell everyone in the church, you know, but take to the church leadership so that they can deal with it. And then, and only then, he says, if they won't listen, if they won't repent, then you treat them like someone who doesn't believe in Jesus because they're not willing to repent of their sin. 
Notice he's saying, if someone has hurt you, if someone is guilty of injustice, if someone has done something that's hurt, that's desire, that need, you need to confront, keep it as small as possible for as long as possible. And I know you, because I know me, what do you want to do as soon as someone hurts you? What do you what's the first thing you want to do? You want to go and tell other people, right? And there's, there's a place for telling someone else, if, if it's, you know, help me, I need to confront this person, can you help me figure out how to do it? There's, that's okay. But if it's just, I'm going to go tell everyone else but the person who hurt me, that's gossip, that's slander, that's not of God. And here he's saying, go and talk to the person one-to-one. If they won't listen to you, then take someone else and try to persuade them. It's not call them out and shame them and cancel them. It's deal with this one-on-one, if, it, if, it, if at all possible. Treat them like family if this is someone in the church. Remember 1 Timothy 5. Paul said, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. That is the attitude, he says, we are to take with each other. Wherever there is perceived sin, wherever we feel like there's injustice, we treat each other in the church like family, restoring each other gently. The goal is not vengeance. The goal is not cancellation. The goal is not silencing and destroying people. The goal is love and restoration. Speaking the truth in love, which we get from Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 15, where Paul says it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead... Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. What does, he said, what does he say that helps us grow up and mature? People who speak the truth in love to each other. And when you think of that phrase, you know, you think of some people who are all about speaking the truth, but they don't really care about the love part, right? Some of you might be that type of person. Like, they just need to know. You know, they just need to know the truth. Jesus says, okay, yes, they need to know the truth, but you need to speak the truth in love, not with a desire to kill the other person, destroy them. And some people are all about speaking in love, but they're afraid to speak the truth. And that's what the Bible calls flattery, right? Speaking loving words, but not speaking the truth. And then some people just don't speak at all, right? Something's happening, I'm I'm just not going to say anything. But Jesus says, the way we grow up and mature is a, a community that's willing to speak the truth in love to each other. That's how we grow up. If you see injustice, if you see something needs to be confronted, you go, you speak the truth in love to that person. In case you don't know what love is, 1 Corinthians 13 says this, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Okay? In case you needed a refresher on what it means to speak the truth in love, that's what it means. That's what it looks like. 
This, he says, is what leads to maturity and unity. This is what would lead in the culture, in our world, to a better world, a world of more respect and, and unity. If we, when we saw injustice, when we saw people behaving badly, if we called it out this way, speaking the truth in love, with a desire to restore, not a desire to destroy, how much better would we be? And yes, there may be room for action, you know, for things like boycotts and group action like that. You know, those things, when they're done in love, there may be a place for that. But when things are done out of a desire for vengeance, out of a desire to destroy, it's only going to lead to more destruction. The third thing is this, not just take the plank out of your own eye and then speak the truth in love with the goal of restoration, but thirdly, the Bible tells us when it comes to confronting injustice to leave the vengeance to God. Anybody have a hard time doing this? Leave the vengeance to God. Romans 12, 17 to 21, Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Should I say that again? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine, meaning God saying that, is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a metaphor that has gone out of favor these days, I know. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that clear enough? God says, leave the vengeance to me. Again, in James 4, 11 to 12, it says, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I get it, right? Why we want to take vengeance? Because we feel like there's a thing called justice and this person has transgressed what I consider justice and they need to be punished. And I know how they should be punished and I know when they should be punished and I'm going to do that. And God says, Stop. You don't have the right to punish others. You don't have the perspective, the proper perspective to know what they deserve. Leave the judgment to me, he says. Your job, he says, is to love, to forgive, to confront by speaking the truth in love. But all that vengeance and all that seeking to destroy, leave that to me and I will handle that. I will do what is best. Overcome evil with good, he says. Do not repay evil for evil. Think of Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 20 to 24. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, we don't want to hear that. I mean, we don't want to hear this by Peter telling us, follow Jesus' example that when people attack you and when they're unjust towards you, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly and love in return. But here Peter's telling us, follow his example. Follow his example. Overcome evil with good, with love. Overcome hatred with love. It's by his wounds, he says, by his death on the cross that we've been healed. You think about justice and mercy and how at the cross those two things met. Those of us who think we just need to call out injustice wherever we see it miss the fact that we are also guilty of injustice, right? I mean, those who are out there calling out everything they see miss, miss the fact, are blind to the fact that they are guilty as well. There is no moral high ground to stand on. It's not there's the good people calling out the evil people. We are all before God guilty of sin, guilty of injustice. We all deserve God's wrath. And at the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserved and gives us his mercy. He took the justice that we deserved and offers us forgiveness. Romans 5, 8 through 10. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Thank God that our God is not like the crowd, right? I mean, the crowd came after Jesus and had him canceled to the best of their ability, and God raised him from the dead. And even though the crowd is doing their offense archaeology, trying to dig up everything they can to destroy people who go against their beliefs and their views. God the Father is not like that. He took the punishment we deserved. He took what justice deserved and gives us mercy. Last passage I want to read is just from Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled, and there's that word, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that instead of canceling us, he canceled the law. He canceled our punishment. And we stand before him perfect in his sight, not guilty, forgiven and loved by him, even though we didn't deserve it. So that we can go out and love and show mercy and overcome evil with good. Let me close with prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy towards us who do not deserve it. Lord, we pray as a church you might help us to set an example of humility, always looking at ourselves first before pointing the finger at someone else, always being quick to confess and repent of our sin. Help us, Lord, to set the example of speaking the truth in love, always looking to restore people to righteousness, not looking to destroy people. 
that we might speak the truth in love so that we might grow up and mature as a church and as a society, Lord. Help us, Lord, to find our identity in you, that even if we are called out and canceled by the mob, Lord, that we would know who we are in you and continue, Lord, to preach the gospel that saves from sin. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.